The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church Pulpit Series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. It's good to see the family coming together to worship Jesus. Well, this morning, please pray for me. Um, I want to address the elephant in our culture which is the plebiscite. Uh, Many of you will receive your forms this week. I think Tuesday they get sent out. And trust me, I did not want to do this. This is not one of those sermons you want to jump up and preach in a hurry. And um, I certainly wrestled with it, how to do it, what should we do. And it took me a long time to come to a place of going, no, I, I think we need to say something especially in light of the fact that we've been journeying through 1 Peter and talking about engaging with our culture. And so, you know, we should engage with our culture. And so um, I'm bringing this message with great trepidation, but great humility, and I trust that it will be helpful. And the reason I felt I needed to address the plebiscite is I want each of us to make an informed decision. That's it. Just make an informed decision. And there's so much stuff floating around, so much information, so much misinformation that it can be just overwhelming. And so I want to try as best as I can to kind of distill some thoughts for you to take away and kind of figure out. So some qualifications. I've got notes today, you notice, because I want to stick to them. Some qualifications. Um, Look, I've spent a lot of time over the last few weeks reading, talking to people, thinking about this, praying about it. And by no stretch of the imagination have I got this figured out. And I certainly don't have all the answers. And there's a lot I don't know. And, and I'm okay with that because I don't think we'll ever know everything there is to know about everything. So that's the first qualification. I don't have all the answers. And I can't tell you I figured it all out and here's the answer. I can't do that. Uh, the second thing, second qualification is that this is a complex issue with lots of different facets to it. And there's no way in a 30-minute message I'm going to be able to do it justice. And so uh, it would, it'll, it's going to lead to me reducing some of the complexity of this debate down to oversimplifications, generalizations, and I'm just going to put that out there and say some of this will be that. I just There's no other way to do it, and I, I want to be straight up with that and go, yeah, it's an oversimplification, it's a generalization, but that's the best I can do. Having said that, if you want to dig deeper, there's so much information around at the moment about this stuff from both sides of the debate. And I've got some really helpful articles that I guess affirm my position on it. And if you want to know more, I'm happy to talk about it. I'm happy to send you some articles for you to read and explore it in greater detail. The third qualification is that I'm not going to tell you what to vote. I know some churches are doing that. Um, Some movements are telling their churches and their people, this is how we want you to vote. I I believe this is a decision of your conscience. And you ought to, with your wisdom, with your prayerfulness, with your heart for Jesus, be able to make an informed decision. What I'm going to try and do is help you to think about how you ought to vote. How you should, the process that should lead to the decision you're going to make. And I want to try and do that by asking you a whole bunch of questions that try to summarize the main points of this debate as I understand it. And again, I need to acknowledge that. I have a bias, and I'm going to try hard for that not to come across. But even by the questions I ask you to think about, my bias will probably show. 
And so I need to, again, qualify that right up the front and say, well, I have one and you'll probably pick it up. But you need to kind of pull that aside and just try and hear the bigger ideas and work it out for yourself. So those are the qualifications. So here's, as I understand, some of the main lines of what this debate is around. I'm going to try and travel this path by a series of questions. First one, there's a lot of stuff around the definition of the word marriage. That's a big part of this debate. What does this word actually mean? And so a whole bunch of questions that come out of that. Can any word be redefined? Can you just decide, okay, we're going to change the definition of a word, and that's okay. One writer asked this question, can a square ever be something other than a shape with four equal sides and four right angles? Is that possible? Then the question that comes out of that is, is marriage one of those words that's fixed for all time, or is it something that every culture and different cultures in different times can question and redefine? So that's something to think about and then flowing on from that thinking about where did our idea of marriage come from do you believe that it's a biblical idea that it's God's idea or do you believe it's a social convention that governments can define it's an institution that helps make our society great and we can redefine it if we feel that that needs to happen so thinking about what were the reasons behind that word being included in common law in our definition of the Marriage Act? Why was it included then? Are those reasons still current or are they now obsolete? Have, they, have we moved on from archaic old, old traditional ideas and we've evolved more and so we need to redefine this word that has been a part of our society and our culture for thousands of years, not just Australian but the early periods of history. But people are arguing, hang on, hang on. John Howard put it in in 2004. Yes, that's true. He did put in this idea of marriage being between a man and a woman. Up until then, it was just two consenting adults. But I spoke to one of my lawyer friends, and he said that even though that was only added in 2004, that was the common understanding of two consenting adults. John Howard just made it clearer. But can we do that? And is it time to change it again? What are the potential outcomes for society if we change the definition of this word? That's something for you to think about and wrestle with. So those are some of the questions around the word and redefining the word. But then there's kind of other, another major point of contention is the nature of human relationships that flow out of thinking about marriage. So I've read arguments about are there certain types of relationships that are more suited to the flourishing of our society than other kinds of relationships? It is the idea of a monogamous, covenantal relationship between a man and a woman somehow better as the building block for human society? That's really the question. Uh, I read another article where uh, some of the people here who are engineers will be able to confirm this. They, they, asked the qu- they said, they made this statement that triangles just happen to be better shapes for building bridges than squares. It's just a fact. Can we say that about heterosexual marriage that somehow, like triangles, it's just better as a building block for society. Maybe, maybe not. It's something you need to figure out. The, the questions that flow out of that is, well, why do then so many societies and cultures and religions still hold to marriage being between one man and one woman? Surely, we can't all have it wrong. 
And there's a lot of people who still hold to this. Why is that? Why do they believe it's important? Now, having said that, what about the cultures that don't define marriage the way we understand it, maybe, from a biblical framework? What about cultures like Kenya, where I've visited, where polygamy is accepted, and many other cultures in the world believe that, no, society can function with a man married to more than one woman. Now, when I talk to the pastors in Kenya, they tell me, well, that might be law, but it doesn't work. It creates so much complication and problem. And yet, societies seem to function with different ideas of human relationships. So we need to ask ourselves, what is the impact of those other kinds of relationships on our society? Will they enable society to flourish the same way? What about polygamy in Australia? I know a lot of people have been talking about that because of the growing influence of Islam, for instance, in our country. Is that going to lend itself for a flourishing in our society? The nature of human relationships. And flowing on from that, is it discriminatory to hold to the idea that heterosexual relationships and homosexual relationships are different and therefore should be treated differently? Is that necessarily discriminatory? It's like saying, well, if triangles are better for building bridges than squares, is it discriminatory to say, well, we're going to use more triangles or only triangles in building bridges than squares? Is that somehow an injustice? There's a lot of debate around that question. Thirdly, another big factor to consider in how you vote is, is is this an issue about equality and justice? There's a lot of debate around that question. Is this a, is this a justice issue? And again, let me, let me give you some facts. So again, I spoke, when I was speaking to my lawyer friend, I asked him this. I said, look, I've read a lot of stuff on the media, a lot of hype going on. Tell me the truth. Like, tell me the facts. Is there really a discrepancy? And the short answer is yes, there is. There is a dis- discrepancy, a difference in law between heterosexual couples and homosexual couples, even in civil unions. He, however, went on to say that there are things that homosexual couples can do to minimize the impact of, impact of those discrepancies. But he said there will still be certain circumstances where heterosexual couples will come out in front than a homosexual couple, particularly in the area of um, care for a partner in the, in, in the face of incapacity, so power of attorney kind of stuff where a same-sex couple that might have been together for years, will the partner will lose the power to make health care decisions for the sick partner and a family member who they've not had any contact with, who are completely estranged from them, will have a greater claim to make that decision than their partner who's been with them for years. The same when it comes to wills and estates. There is a difference. So there is a discrepancy. And so the question is, should we as Christians be fighting for justice and equality for everyone? That is a valid question to ask. Another question that comes out of equality and justice that's floating around is, what about the rights of children? And there's a lot of argument that the Marriage Act, the the sole purpose of marriage, the Marriage Act is not to define human marital relationships, but to protect the rights of children, to ensure that the rights of children are, or children are given the opportunity to have a biological mother and father raising them. Because again, the evidence that that plays a crucial role in the well-being of a healthy child and the benefit of society is overwhelming. 
Now, that doesn't mean that our society values that, and we see the rise of single-parent families and a whole bunch of blended families and all kinds of situations. We know that. But what about the rights of the children? Then the question is, well, whose rights should we be fighting for? Whose rights are more important? And that's a fundamental question of law. Fourthly, and this is a big one um, that I guess we'll continually need to think about as society and culture drifts further and further away from biblical values. Let me say something really clearly to us. We are not a Christian country. We really need to get that out of our head. We're really not. Our, Our society and our culture may be based on Christian values and biblical principles. And in the West particularly, we can see the effect that the the teachings of Scripture and the Bible have had on shaping our society. But that does not make us a Christian anything. We need to start there. So then the question that flows out of that is, well, how should the church relate to the state? How much right do we have as the church to impose our morality on a world that doesn't believe in the things that we believe? And if you say no, we still have the right to do that. On what basis can we make that claim? Well, just because we say, well, the Bible says that this should be the case. That, 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 for some people, that's all that we need to say. The Bible says... But is that enough in engaging with a secular society, a pluralistic society? How would that idea work in, a, in Myanmar, for instance, like we're talking about? How does the church relate to the state? And if you, if you say, no, the church does not have any right to impose its morality and its values on a secular society, then the question that flows out of that is, well, then do we just say nothing? Do we just those monkeys. I see nothing. I hear nothing. I say nothing. Or do we say, well, hang on, even if we don't have the right to impose a biblical worldview on a non-biblical world, the church still has a lot to contribute to our society. And we, there's still a place for us saying, hang on, God's principles and God's ways are something we should consider in making our laws and, 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 and how we govern our society because they actually work. And whether you acknowledge God or not, God's principles are there because they're there for human flourishing. And we want to we help our society by saying there's a better way for us to live. Is there still a place for us to do that? And how do we do that without coming across as being judgmental, negative, critical, all of that? What role then should we play as citizens of a democracy where we have the freedom to have a voice and we have the opportunity to have a say and we have the mechanisms put into place, again, from biblical principles that allow us to engage with our culture in a meaningful and positive way. Another point of debate is about the possible long-term consequences of changing this definition. And we need to think seriously about that. And again, there's disagreement on both sides and the, and the politicians are clamoring to, to, to quickly say, no, 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 we, we will make sure that you know, these things are going to be protected and stuff like that. And, 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 and they're throwing out all these promises, but the whole plebiscite even came about because of people saying, you didn't keep your promise. And really, when it comes to politicians, is that something we hold on to, that they're going to keep their promises so what are the long-term consequences? How, is the, how are these changes playing out in other countries? Because we're not the first. We're one of the last. 
So we have ample evidence all around us to actually look at how is this playing out in other societies and cultures? Is it actually making things better? Is it actually advancing and progressing their societies? Is it actually creating a greater sense of cohesion in their society and culture? The evidence doesn't seem to be very positive and encouraging. And the, the effect on civil liberties and religious freedom in the West where these laws have been passed are beginning to change. Even in Australia, while the law still stands, there is so much pressure and so many people have been taken before discrimination co- courts already in states because of their convictions, because of them sticking to their beliefs on this issue. Well, what will be the implications on civil liberties if the law is changed and it becomes a federal law? Something to consider and think about as well. And then if, if we go down that road, well, how should we think about and respond to those changes? Again, in 1 Peter, we talked about living in a, a society that's opposed to the Bible and how we're meant to endure and hold firm to our commitment to Christ in the face of a culture that does not understand the church. So again, do we just passively say, well, if society goes that way, that's up to them. We're just going to do nothing. We'll just be the church in our little closed communities. And and that's all we need to do. As long as we can do our own thing here, that's okay. But it's not enough to say that. Because there's Christian business people, there's Christian schools, there's a whole bunch of people who are in secular organizations that are being pressured to conform to their culture if they have a different view on this. How should we respond to that? Do we play the martyr and go, okay, well, even if it means I get fired, even if it means I have to close my business, even if it means I I have to close down my school or close down whatever it is I'm doing because of my commitment to Christ, then that's okay because that's how the world is going to go anyway. How should we respond? The last point of, I guess, something for you to think about. How will your Christian convictions affect your vote? Should it? And if so, how? If not, why not? Is this issue somehow separate from your commitment to following Christ? What do you believe about the nature of marriage as revealed in Scripture? What is your understanding of what the Bible teaches? Do you believe that marriage ought to be a a lifelong commitment that's covenantal, exclusively between one man and one woman? Or do you think the Bible is more open to other types of ideas of marriage? And if that is your conviction, then how will that affect your vote, even though the rest of the world might not agree with your conviction or your definition? The question that comes out of that is, do you believe that God's gift of marriage is just for Christian people, for God's people, and not really for the world outside? Or do you believe that it's God's gift for all of humanity because it is actually the way our society flourishes? What is the most loving thing to do? in this debate? Is it to to give wonderful people who are good people what they really want? Or is the most loving thing to say, I believe that that is actually against God's ideal for our society. And so I'm going to say no, because I actually believe that is the most loving thing to do. Or do you believe the most loving thing to do is to make sure that everyone has equal rights and equal opportunities and is treated the same in our society? What is the most loving thing to do? Some concluding thoughts. Uh, I was thinking, you know, one of the reasons I didn't want to do this topic 
is because I thought at some point I'll probably offend somebody. And I, I, I was mindful of it causing division, and I, I, I hope it doesn't. And I know that some of you probably think I shouldn't, uh, I said too much, and some of you will think I didn't say enough. But this is really what I felt to share. Give you those questions and then kind of give you some concluding thoughts about how to engage with this debate. Firstly, I want to challenge you to be informed and engaged with this debate. Don't, don't bury your head in the sand. Look, I know it's hard. I found this hard. It's difficult to figure out and tease this stuff out. And people are so passionate about this. So much emotion. But, but be informed. Read. Talk to people. Have conversations. Hear people's stories. Hear people's experiences. Try and understand where people are coming from. Even if you disagree, listen, learn, grow in your knowledge. Use this as an opportunity to enlarge your world, enlarge your thinking a little bit. Engage. It's difficult. But following Jesus has never been easy. If you're planning to vote yes, I encourage you to push through your fear of being judged, particularly in the church, particularly by other Christians. That's going to be hard. But I encourage you, if that is your conviction and that is your commitment, push through that fear. If you believe that that is the right thing, you're going to have to overcome that sense of people will judge me. If you truly believe that, overcome that. If you're planning to vote no, then push through the fear of intimidation particularly from a world outside the media, your friends at work who will just not understand your apparent narrow-mindedness and your homophobia and your bigotry. Push through that. Have the courage to stay true to your convictions. Be informed, be engaged, be involved. The second kind of big idea I want to challenge you with is keep perspective. You know, like sometimes... As a church, as Christians, we get hung up on stuff. We, we kind of, you know, make mountains out of molehills. And I'm not being dismissive. This is a real issue. And, and it's a big issue. And there's a lot at stake for a lot of people. But it's not the only issue. Even in the Bible passages where homosexuality is mentioned in the New Testament, it's mentioned alongside things like greed, alongside things like lying, alongside things like gossiping and slander. So, you know, let's just keep it in perspective. Sin is sin. And if you believe that homosexuality is sin, great. Okay. But so is a whole bunch of other things. Let's not somehow elevate this to be the unforgivable sin. Let's keep perspective from a biblical point of view. But also, keep it in perspective of a global point of view. There's so much stuff going on in our world right now. You know, we prayed this morning for Florida and Mexico and Myanmar, and, and the list goes on and on and on. And in our culture, we get so fixated on stuff that we lose perspective of the, the chaos that's reigning in our world. You know, we're praying against the, the, the demons of homosexuality, and we're not praying against other demons that are at work, causing chaos. You know, I'm using that example. I hope you understand what I mean by that. We need to think bigger in terms of God's world and care about 
a whole bunch of stuff that's going on in our world right now. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen lots of people on Facebook, you know, saying about the church, the church is a, you know, one issue organization. You know, everyone's just going on about homosexuality. And then I read another review uh, or another article and the person responded saying to that idea saying, well, the reason the church is only talking about that now is because that's all people want an answer for from the church. It doesn't mean that we're not interested in other things. It just means right now, nobody cares about what else we're interested in right now. So let's be Christians who have a broader perspective. I remember a few years ago when, uh, again, politicians were reneging on a promise. And this time it was about overseas aid. They'd made a commitment at the G8 conference to, to give a certain amount of foreign aid. And they were cutting that back. And the church was in arms about it. There were same kind of passion, lobbying. I know Compassion went to Canberra and they were lobbying the government saying, no, come on, you made a commitment to give foreign aid. Let's not cut back that. Cut something else back. And yet the government did. They cut back foreign aid. So we have the capacity to speak out about a whole bunch of things. Right now, nobody's listening, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be speaking about a whole bunch of things. Keep perspective. Last thing about this particular debate. Be committed to truth, but gracious in your attitude. In John 1.14, this is the challenge. This is the benchmark. John says about Jesus that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Well, I think it's truth first, actually, from John 1.14. Truth and grace. Let's follow in Jesus' footsteps. One writer said, we can be right in our convictions, but wrong in our attitude. And that's so true. That's so true. Let's be people that remember that this is not an issue. We're talking about people. And we're talking to people. So let's be mindful about how we're speaking because they're people that Jesus loves passionately. So let's be people who hold on to our truth convictions but hold on to them with great grace. Let's not our convictions ever lead us to have an arrogance that looks down on people and judges them. But also, let's not our failures as the church in the past in how we've horrendously treated same-sex people and people who are gay and dealing with that in their own lives. The history of the church has been horrendous. But let's not th that regret and that remorse force us to be so loving that we compromise on our convictions either. Let's hold that tension of being gracious and truthful. Okay some broader applications, not just about this issue, but in terms of engaging with our culture. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10, and I'm just going to wrap up with these few verses. And this is, I'm going to pick up some verses on the end of a story where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And there's some really interesting things that happen in this account that I would love us as a church to carry with us as a church community. And I'm going to pick it up from verse 22, uh, verse 21, where Jesus looks at him and loves him. So this rich young ruler has come and he's asked Jesus, how do I, I guess, how do I uh, inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep all the commandments. And this guy says, I've been doing that since I was a boy. And Jesus responds in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Let's start there. Let's start with loving people. 
And then Jesus challenges him. He says, one thing you lack. He said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Can I say, people will always walk away from Jesus because they don't like what Jesus calls for. And then there's a whole bunch of things that flow out of this. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Notice what Jesus says, how hard it is for the rich, not for the gays. Now, how many of us would go, okay, that's a challenge to me in my Western world. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at this word. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are now freaking out. Disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? The implication is if the rich can't get saved, then nobody can get saved. Jesus looked at them and he said, with human beings, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up and he said, we have left everything to follow you. Notice that, left everything to follow you. Jesus responds, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecution. I love the way Jesus just kind of tacks that in there. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So many things I can draw out from that passage. But just three big ideas. One, let's always be a church and let's always be a people that focuses on the gospel. What I mean by that is Jesus calls all of us to leave everything. Jesus is not just making a call on gay people that's different to a call on heterosexual people or rich people or broken people or people with marriage problems. It's the same call for everyone. Leave everything and follow me. That's the only way. That's the only way. In Ephesians 2, Paul again universalizes the gospel by saying all of us were dead in our sins. Every single one of us. None of us is better than anybody else. We all stand leveled by our sinfulness. To use an expression that one writer said, he said, in, in, in light of the gospel, none of us are straight. Remember that. None of us are straight. We're all crooked. We're all bent. We're all broken. Let's never forget that. Jesus here reminds us that his call is for everyone to leave everything and follow him. There's no other way to find our value, our purpose, our identity, our innermost longings, our innermost desires for every one of us in Jesus. And if we look to anything other than Jesus for those core, fulfilling, identifying things, then we, are, we haven't found Jesus yet. It's the call of the gospel. Leave everything and find it all in me. Find your, your healing, your wholeness, your sexuality, your sexual longings, your, your insecurities, your fears, your, 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 your confidence in your wealth, all of that. Find it in me. And to do that, you need to leave it all. That's why Jesus says stuff like, you know, to find your life, you need to lose it. You can't keep half of it. It's a total commitment. 
The second thing that I want to challenge us as a church to think about from this passage is that we ought to be people, Christians, who are followers of Jesus, who are good news to our community. Let's be good news. In the context of Jesus telling this rich guy to leave everything and follow him, the disciples going, how can this be? How can, how can we understand this? And then Peter kind of goes, hang on, we've left everything. And Jesus gives this promise that when you come into the kingdom, even though you've left everything, you find everything. You find everything in the kingdom of God, in, in Christ. And I want to I suggest you that that's through the church. It's, it's through God's people. And that's why in the book of Acts, we, we, talk, we hear about these rich people in the, in, who get saved and who come to Christ. They sell everything and they share stuff with each other. There's no need. And this rich guy would have found everything he needed in the community of faith. Lonely people. And that's why Jesus says, even your family, if you have to walk away from your family to follow me, you will find family in, your, in the church, in the kingdom. And we need to be that. We need to be that for everyone who has left everything to follow Jesus. We need to be mothers and fathers and brothers. We need to give even same-sex attracted people the intimacy and friendship and community that they are walking away from if they decide to follow Jesus. We need to be that. We can't say to them, look, you need to give all of that up to follow Jesus and then just let them be. No, Jesus says you will find it in the kingdom. Well, we need to be that good news for everyone, not just for gay people, but for single moms, for orphans, for widows, for whoever leaves everything to follow Jesus. We need to be the good news to them. You know, I was in Sri Lanka a few years back now, and I I saw the reality of this. I happened to be at a church in the eastern part, which is primarily Hindu. And these Young people were getting water baptized that day I was there. And this pastor was telling me, you know, those, those young people, they're dead to their family now because they've left Hinduism to follow Jesus. It's cost them everything. They, they will walk down the street in their village and their parents will walk the other way and not even acknowledge that they exist. And so he said the church has had to take them in. We've taken them in. We, 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 we've become a home for them now. We've become their family. They live here. We, we care for them. We pay for their education expenses. I'm like, wow. That's the gospel. That's the hope and the promise of the gospel. Jesus says, my church needs to be that for people who are leaving everything to follow me. The last truth that I want to challenge you with from Mark 10, trust God. You know, in this passage, the disciples are like, who, who can be saved? This is impossible. And maybe in your mind, gay people are the, the people trying to get through the eye of the needle. But it's not. It's the rich people. Right? And Jesus says, well, you know, you, it might seem impossible, but God can do that. God can do that. And when you think about your life, hasn't it been a miracle, really, that has brought you to Jesus? Or did it take less of a miracle for you to get saved than for somebody else? It's the same God. The same miracle. We need to trust that God. That God can care for our nation. That God can care for his church in the midst of debate and disagreement. That God can save people that we might think it's impossible for them to be saved. 
We can trust God and trust Jesus with separating the sheep from the goat, the wheat from the tares, the good fish from the bad fish. They're all parables that Jesus said, you don't do it. Trust me to do that. We need to trust God to be God and do His thing and rest even in our limited understanding in all that we don't know, you know, with trying to figure difficult things out and say, God, I just trust you. And I trust that you see my heart and you see my intentions and you see my integrity and I trust you with my heart. Trust God. Jesus reminds us that the things that seem impossible to us are not impossible for him. So I hope, Luke, if you can jump up, I hope that's been helpful. I hope I haven't confused you even more. But if I've given you things to think about, I'm glad. And I hope that you think long and hard and prayerfully and bring this before God and say, God, to the best of my knowledge, as I understand things, I really believe this is the right thing for me to vote. And do it. Do it in confidence. Do it trusting God with the future of how this will all play out in our country, in the church, whatever it is. God's still sovereign. And if we're praying for him to do something about earthquakes and hurricanes, then I think God can handle the plebiscite. Let's live with that confidence. Why don't you stand with me? And we're going to just sing Christ alone. Just that chorus part to remind us that he's the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He's the rock. And I encourage you, worship him. Worship him as you go. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Weak, made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord. Yes, Lord. Lord of all. Jesus. Jesus, we bow before you this morning in our hearts as the Lord of all. Father, we trust you with the future of our country. Lord, with the future of this planet that's in so much chaos. Lord, with the future of our individual lives and the challenges we face. We trust you, Lord. The things that are impossible with man are possible with you. And we rest in that confidence. And as we go, Father, I pray that you will continue to speak to us, be in our thoughts, help us to engage with our culture, with those in our workplaces and schools and universities who are wrestling with this debate. Lord, help us to be salt and light. Help us to radiate Jesus even in the midst of hurt and pain and intense emotion, to speak the truth as we understand it with a gracious and loving, compassionate heart. Be with us as we go. Be with us as we have morning tea together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.